What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hey, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan in for Kelly once again. Here's what's ahead on The Exchange. A better-than-expected jobs number, and stocks are trying to hold up. So are we back to good news is good news, or good news is still bad news, or bad news is bad news, but only when it's good? If you're confused, you're not alone. We're going to dig in and ask if the markets have finally broken their addiction to the Fed and what it all means for Main Street and your money. Plus, the view from the port. The executive director of America's newly crowned busiest port joins us to talk trade, supply chain, labor, bottles, whatever it is, and more. Plus, a special Fed wake-up call edition of three buys and a bail. Gina Sanchez joining us with three stocks she likes and one she says no. You got to steer clear. We got all that ahead. Hi, everybody. But we begin with today's markets. And we said trying to hold up. They were, Scott and the gang told you, they were up big earlier in the session, but we've pretty much given back all the gains. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Dow and the S&P 500 both negative in about, I don't know, four seconds. The Dow was up more than 600 points immediately after that October jobs number, at least the futures indicated it would be. The major index is all on track for a down week. And if so, I mean, unless something turns around, they are. It would be the first down week in five weeks for the Dow, the first down week in three weeks for both the NASDAQ and the S&P. Like I said, we could literally just sit here and count until that goes red. All that as Treasury yields move back higher, the two-year pulling back a little bit. It touched a 15-year high earlier today. That yield right now is at 4.67%. Hard to believe it was like, what, 0.3% two years ago, by the way. This spread between this number and this number here to many says that is flashing a recession signal. That spread there, a recession sign. The U.S. dollar getting hit today, especially against the Chinese yuan. That is helping equities. Crude oil, by the way, it is going up again. It is up nearly 4%. It is trading back above $90 a barrel. We are getting more calls for more fossil fuel production by the president out there. The industry perhaps trying to respond, but look at crude oil up four and a half percent back to ninety two seventeen. The latest release from the SPR, remember, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that kicks off December 1st. Six firms were awarded it. Three of them, by the way, international trading companies. So it's very likely that whatever oil they buy, particularly if it is sweet version, not sour, will end up just being exported. Hard to believe, but but likely true. We're going to have to wait to find out. Also, Going strong is the travel trade. United Airlines, Expedia, Vegas Sands, Booking Holdings, all leading the gains. Look at that. Big stuff there. And we got the CEO of Royal Caribbean coming up in a few more minutes. All right. So let's kick off this hour by talking jobs and the state of the American economy. 261,000 jobs were added in October, and that is likely to keep the Fed aggressive. Remember, they've basically admitted they need Americans to lose their jobs to push down inflation. Hard to believe, but true. We certainly don't want anyone to lose their jobs. Let's kick it all off with a look at this with Diane Swank, chief economist at KPMG. We've also got David Harden, CEO and chief investment officer of Summit Global Investments, and Seema Modi, who, as we mentioned, has an interview with the CEO of RCL Royal Caribbean. All right, 
Seema, David, sit tight. Diane, we're going to start with you. I saw your tweet this morning about the job market, and what caught my eye was this little thing you put sort of at the bottom. Note, I am only the messenger. In other words, I, like, <laughs> you're, not, you're not looking for job losses. Nobody wants that. But the reality is the Federal Reserve has all but said we need people to lose their jobs to ultimately bring down inflation. That's why this number today was creating a little bit of a conundrum. Exactly. We saw some mixed messages between the household survey, which showed a decline in employment and a rise in unemployment, and the payroll survey, which showed an increase and a bigger than expected increase with upward revisions. At the end of the day, we generated 4.1 million new paychecks year to date. That is almost double the pace of annual paycheck gains in the 2010s and the second highest level of annual job gains since 1978. It's pretty stunning. And that's why we've got aggregate demand still going up, even as the bite of inflation and rate hikes kicks in. Individuals have lost ground and then some to inflation who were employed. But those additional paychecks are what's the problem. And the Fed, in order to get inflation down in a productivity environment that's the worst since 1982, they have to not only hit the demand for workers, but also, unfortunately, they have to affect the one place they can affect supply, and that is via a rise in the unemployment rate. I mean, it's, t- it's, it's awful to even talk about, and I'm not sure, Diane, you and I have been speaking for, what, 20, 25 years? And... I'm not sure I've ever talked Might be with longer you. longer than that, Brian, you, for me. <laughs> yeah, or just felt like that. 70 years, Sullivan. Here's the thing. I don't think we've ever had this conversation. It's so bizarre. But you're the economist. I'm not. But tell our audience, my guess is wage-based inflation is very sticky. Once you give somebody a raise, what are you going to do? Take it back? No way. It is, it is sticky. The kind of inflation we're seeing is sticky. Even though wages are underpacing overall inflation gains, the problem is productivity growth has fallen and unit labor costs have risen. And so that's cost push inflation out there. But it's also this sort of aggregate demand is being buoyed. Individuals feel like, the majority of Americans feel like we're either in a recession or on the cusp of a recession. Well, that's because If they had a job this year, they've lost all they've gained and then some in Mm. those wage acceleration to inflation. But the aggregate demand is still there and buoying inflation and the loss in productivity. Unless we were to see a magic overnight surge in productivity growth, the wage the wages that we see are adding to inflation. We've also seen turnover rates slow down a bit, which is helping to cool wage gains a little bit, but not enough to really bring inflation back down to reasonable levels. What we want to see is a labor market that's more in balance so that we can see wages outpace inflation. But I often sort of liken what we're seeing to cancer, and that is that cancer, you know, left unaddressed can metastasize and become something more acute and more fatal. And what the Fed's issue now is being the oncologist, I've been on the end of those um, discussions, unfortunately, giving the bad news that here's what we have to do to cure you it's not going to be fun, but it's better than the alternative. Yeah, and, and we're and we're an so glad. Message. Yeah, we're by the way, some members of the Sullivan family in the same boat, Dan. We're glad that you and 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 others are doing well now on that. But is there any argument for a, a pause? They can always rate, and here's why. I think, and I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying here's sort of the idea, right? Which is 
just take a pause for a meeting or two, see how things shape up, because it, it does feel like, you know, t- to use sort of the, the medical-ish analogy, somebody gained 20 or 30 pounds in COVID and now is trying to lose it all in a month, right? It's going to take time. Why not wait and see how things shake out? Because it feels like they're trying to do it all right now. There is a very good point about that. And actually, I'm in favor of going. I was very much in favor of actually the Fed only going 50 basis points, not because we don't need to eradicate the economy of inflation and we don't need to get a higher um, rate to do that, but because rapid rate hikes are in and of themselves incredibly destabilizing. Look at the recession that the housing market is in. We've just seen the worst two back-to-back quarters, and they're comparable to what we saw during the subprime crisis. That Housing is in a recession. Homes, home prices are beginning to peak and come off their peaks, and they're going to fall next year. That oh, is yeah. going to accelerate and compress the deceleration in inflation. And so I do think that the Fed could be a little more calibrating. And they you know, said, well, maybe we'll slow down the pace of rate hikes, but we're going to end at a higher rate than we said before. My, our own analysis suggests, yes, you could do that. But I certainly would be in favor of being even more cautious with the calibration and moving a little yep. more slowly now that we're already well into what the Fed considers restrictive territory, especially when you look at overall financial conditions. Yeah, I think I think when you said home prices fall, I think that may have been the understatement of the day so far. I'm really worried about housing prices. Diane Swank, glad you're here. Glad you have a great Friday and we look forward to seeing you again very much. Thank you. All right. So now to stocks and that reaction. And our guest says, for goodness sakes, do not try to fight the Fed right now. And he's brought some opportunity stocks as well for you. Joining us now is David Harden, CEO and CIO of Summit Global Investors. You just heard Diane, David. So I would imagine People are trying to guess this pivot game. I mean, that, well, could, that could end poorly. It, it may, and we'll have to see. You clearly saw the Fed in the, meeting, in, in the, in the minutes of the meeting today, or, or the other day when they released it, there was a number of different points. Ongoing increases are going to happen, but then they'll take into account you know, the tightening and, and the impacts on the economy. So they gave them room to slow it down which they never had before. And then the commentary from, uh, you know, from Powell's commentary and his testimony, all hawkish. So the reality is, is there's a lot going on with Fed speak the rea- and do not fight the Fed. They have a long ways to go. They have definitely done it um, later than they needed. It's steeper than we've ever had it before. I think it definitely is going to and has impact the economy. But that impact you mentioned about housing, right? We typically feel the impact six months after the rate increases. We're only feeling April's increases. We have a long ways to go on the housing market. We have a long ways to go on this market. A long and so, way to go. Which way with housing? Down? Down, right? Down. We have a, we have a lot of uh, pain yet to be felt on the consumers. It's one of the biggest things consumers have to deal with is taking money out of their home, refinancing, getting money from their home. Yeah. It's one of their biggest assets they have. So this is a huge impact on our economy, what the Fed has done. And the reality is, Inflation is sticky. Yeah. It's still very, very high. And the signs are that they may have to do more in the future. And that's well, what we expect. We just don't know what the impact's going to be. And to your housing point, I don't know if we have this chart, but Deutsche Bank came out with something, I think it was yesterday, which was, to be honest with you, was kind of terrifying. And they showed that at current, what you could afford, if you could afford $2,500 a month for a home, how much home could you buy? 
And last year, one year ago, you could afford about a $750,000 home, 20% down, et cetera, at current rates for $2,500 a month. That house is now $475,000, a nearly $300,000 drop. If we see the housing market do that, I can't imagine the impact on the American economy because real estate is a lot bigger and more important than the stock market. That's right. The only thing bigger than real estate on the economy is the Fed, right? So we have to remember that. that that's why Powell said the path to a soft la- landing has narrowed significantly. I added the significantly. And the reality is it's true. So they're in a, they, they've painted themselves into a corner. I think that's why you want to stay defensive. You do not want to fight the Fed. Let them figure it out, if you will, hopefully get it better than they have so far in the past and look for these market bottoms. The market hasn't bottomed. The VIX has not even come close above what a 32 or 33. It needs to get into the 40 in order to really feel like there's capitulation in the market. There's enough fear in the market that it's time to you could switch it to maybe not be so defensive. But right now, you want to stay defensive. You want to manage risk in this market. We'd reference the price of oil. Let's get some picks. Reference the price of oil back above 90 bucks a barrel. Gasoline prices are going to go back up. Um, the president is calling for more fossil fuel production is sort of a carrot and stick, but he is urging. I mean, it's, it's kind of an amazing switch, but we are urging from the White House more fossil fuel production. I know ESG and all this stuff exists. Is that a green light to buy Chevron, to buy Exxon Mobil? Absolutely. You have to own those in your portfolio right now. Um, the reality is, is they're what a, not. What a change, David, because a couple years ago, they were going away. No way you could own them, divest everything. They're dead. Oil's dead. Now you have to own them. Well, they make so much money when oil is that high, right? Their earnings are solid. They're, they're, uh, even with all of the electric vehicles and other things, that we have such a dependency in this world on oil and fossil fuels that it's great for Utah. It's great for the Great Basin. They want to they wanna produce more, make more, and have more jobs. And I think that's wonderful in the sense of where do you put your money now? You have to have some exposure to energy. And that energy play is the big, big players. It's Exxon. It's Chevron. Their gases, gas prices will probably ease a little bit uh, because of more production. But the reality is they still have great yields. They still have good value. Earnings are clearly yep. solid. And that's going to continue. Do we have a strategic chocolate reserve? I, I, we might want to. We might want to. If we do, we might want to release it. Somebody call Willy Wonka because as Bob Pisani has pointed out today many times, Hershey. Is just crushing it. I mean, big chocolate. Don't get in their way. They'll melt well, you. We, we need Halloween, right? And so that really helps out sales. A little sweet for everybody there. But the reality is, is that they have been executing. They've done a fant- fantastic job on their expenses and managing that, but also on their sales. And so as we go into recession, as we look at these uh, volatility in the markets, candy is more addicting than cocaine. Let's just face it. And the reality is, is we uh. can't get rid of it. So... We need to have it. Hershey's a great play. I think this is a really good thing. But not just that. Let's look at it. Low risk here. The volatility in the beta on Hershey alone is worth the investment. Your sharp racers are going to go up when you have more Hershey in your portfolio. So we really like it. Yeah, I don't know about the I don't know about the addiction part, but I will say my crew has seen me gorge on Sour Patch Kids just before the show. That's how it's done. David Harden got big oil and big chocolate. David, thank you. Appreciate that. You're welcome. All right, coming up, falling in love with the Love Boat stocks. Royal Caribbean CEO is up next with SEMA. Plus, is the Fed's captain asleep at the helm? 
We've got a Fed wake-up call edition of Three Buys and a Bail. The exchange is back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Let's talk cruising. Those stocks have been seeing some nice gains in the past month, with Norwegian leading the way, but Royal Caribbean up more than 20%. The company delivering an earnings beat. Is the industry getting closer to being whole again? Let's talk travel and the state of the economy right now. Seema Modi joining us from D.C. with the CEO of Royal Caribbean, who's got like a water slide behind him. <laughs> My parents are on an RCL boat right now. I don't know if that's it, but good luck. Seema, take it away. Brian, thank you. Jason, thank you for joining us today on board the Beyond in Fort Lauderdale. It's great to see you. Great to see you as well, Seema. Uh, let's talk bookings. Uh, clearly, bookings have accelerated since Labor Day as those COVID restrictions were removed in early September. But what are you seeing right now? Tell us what the fourth quarter looks like. Yeah, well, you know, we, we currently have about 150,000 guests sailing with us as I speak right now. And so we're seeing two really strong things. One, acceleration in the booking environment. Our guests are paying more than they paid in 2019 on the sale with our brands, which is very exciting. And also on the onboard spend, um, they're, they're continuing to spend month, a more month over month um, on our ships for the experiences that we're delivering. You laid out some pretty ambitious 2025 goals, uh, targeting a double-digit earnings growth rate in the next three years. Are these numbers realistic, Jason, at a time when... Economists from J.P. Morgan, Bank of America uh, are expecting a recession next year. Yeah, we, we have we have a great business, Seema, and, and, and our brands, uh, when they're fully occupied, generate a tremendous amount of cash flow and earnings. Um, so we actually, you know, this our trifecta plan is not a plan that's based off of perfection. We do expect there to be some choppy waves at some point in the future. And it really comes down to our fleet being up and running, moderate yield growth, strong cost control and growing our fleet. In a, in a moderate way. And that's all, that's all it takes for us to reach our trifecta goals and beyond. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about occupancy. You're running your ships on average at 96%. That's much higher than your peers, Carnival and Norwegian. What would you chalk that up to? Is that a geographical mix? Which ships you have back online? Or does it simply come down to marketing? Yeah, well, I think, I think it comes down to one. We had an early start bringing our fleet back up. Um, I think second, it shows the strength of our brands. Um, it also shows the strength of our, our assets like Perfect Day at, at Coco Cay. And so we've seen very healthy, strong demand for some time for our customers. Um, and we're also doing all of this while maintaining price integrity, which we think is really important. 
Let's talk international, because prior to the pandemic, it was Royal Caribbean that really had a stronger footprint in China. Last night, you revealed that you are not returning to China. Will you at some point? And tell us the reason. Yeah, well, really, we don't have plans to return to China in 2023. Um, and mainly, it's just more because it's not clear to us exactly um, when outbound travel will return to China and what that travel experience is going to look like. Once we have an understanding of that, you know, we do think China has a lot of upside to it. it you know, when we were there, we were the, the leaders in that burgeoning market. Uh, but at this point in time, we're not going to set plans um, on an environment that we don't know exactly how it's going to open up. Back to what you're seeing here in the U.S., how much pricing power do you have going into 2023 when airfares on average are costing 50 percent more than they did back in January? Is that constraining consumer budgets? And, and are you willing to bring pricing down? Yeah, well, I, I think I think the first thing is, you know, we, we see in every single quarter going forward here, our prices are up. We're booked well within our historical averages. And I think one of the things and you kind of alluded to it before in terms of why are we seeing higher occupancy is, 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 is I think having a lot of drivable markets. So a lot of our guests live within six to seven hours of our ports and they're willing to drive and that can lower uh, their travel costs. We're also seeing travel costs, uh, you know, as, as people are looking to travel abroad, starting to come back into more normal ranges. Got it. Uh, and let's talk about the balance sheet because the cruise lines, uh, including Royal Caribbean, have certainly had to a access the debt market over the past year. How are you thinking about adding leverage at a time when rates only seem to be going higher. At least that's what we heard from Jerome Powell earlier this week. All right, Brian, I think we may have just lost Jason, but uh, clearly one of the questions out there for these cruise stocks, but yet uh, they've had a pretty good month. Yeah, and I think the point there about people driving, my parents went out of Baltimore, you know, so maybe some more of these regional ports where you don't want to get on a plane. My parents are obviously older. They're both above the age of 80. You know, they drive to Baltimore a couple hours, park their car there. You wonder if that's going to be more of a hook, a cost saver. See some more of these cruise ships rolling into Baltimore, Seema. Oh, it's not just Baltimore. It's Los Angeles. It's um, Galveston, Texas. Galveston. They're really trying to bring more ships to the customer, to your point, to ensure that more people who can't afford airfare yeah. are saying, you know what, let's just drive. It's a lot easier, especially when you have a family. Unconfirmed reports from Galveston. People are trying to get on a cruise ship, but then it turned out to be Tillman's new boat. Ah, Seema Modi. There you go. Thank you very much. Jason, if you're out there, thank you as well. Happy sailing. All right. On deck, speaking of ships, move over L.A., there is a new king of American ports. We're going to tell you who coming up next. Plus, it may be the single greatest personal art collection ever assembled. And now it's up for auction. Robert Frank has it. I mean, the story, not, not the actual art. Next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, we call it the data bank. Basically, we're going to give you the markets, some stocks. 
NASDAQ 100, by the way, it's down three-tenths of one percent, only three percent away from a new 52-week low. Hey, I'm just the messenger on this as well, so don't knock it. We are seeing the Dow and the S&P 500. They are higher. The Dow, by the way, having its first down week in about five weeks. The S&P and NASDAQ first down week in about three weeks. Salesforce, Apple, Microsoft are the Dow's worst performers. Here's kind of an RBI for you, random but interesting. This is actually Apple's worst week since March of 2020, when the pandemic and the lockdowns first hit. On the flip side, shares of Boeing leading the Dow this week after some bullish commentary from its executives on both free cash flow and more airplane deliveries. Boeing is on track for its best week since March of 2021. As we mentioned, check out oil continuing to surge even as American producers try and they're trying to heed President Biden's call to ramp up more fossil fuel production. We have increased rigs here and around the world, but maybe not to the speed the White House would like as far as oil production. We are seeing WTI crude, though, back above 92. Again, I'm just the messenger. The bad news that gasoline prices, especially out there in places like California, I know you're already paying over six bucks in most places. It's going to go up either way. Maybe offset it with some stocks if you own EOG, the original Fang, Diamondback, Exxon, Chevron. They are higher as well. All right, let's get a CNBC News update with Contessa Brewer. Contessa. Brian, here's what's happening right now. Trump ally and longtime friend Tom Barrick acquitted on all counts of working illegally as an agent of a foreign government. Barrick was accused of using his access to former President Trump to promote the interests of the United Arab Emirates and then lying to the FBI. He denied the allegations from the start. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes has taken the stand in his sedition trial connected to the January 6th riot on Capitol Hill. Rhodes testified his organization is not racist and isn't even a militia. Instead, he claimed he was a patriot helping military veterans. Prosecutors will now have the chance to cross-examine Rhodes about what they say were his plans for an armed rebellion to keep Trump in power. Saturday's Powerball jackpot is the largest lottery prize in U.S. history. Strong ticket sales have raised the payout to an estimated $1.6 billion. The cash prize has gone up to, I mean, this is if you take it, you know, without all the payments, $782 million. Saturday's drawing will be the 40th Powerball drawing since someone took home that jackpot. How's this for statistics? You know that your chances of winning are infinitesimal, right, Brian? Yes. However... If you actually buy a ticket, your odds skyrocket. Brilliant. <laughs> you know, I was just saying, number one, okay, if the Powerball is 100 million, a lot of people won't buy the tickets because, like, oh, it's only 100 million. Right. But your chances of winning are much, much higher because there's far fewer tickets. And I'm guessing most people no, would be pretty happy no, 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 with no. 100 your bucks, odds, right? No, you, no, no. How is that possible? No? Your odds remain the same no matter what the jackpot there's far is. Fewer, it's no, this, well, mate, there's far fewer tickets. The no, no, no. It, yes. No, it yes, doesn't. The, the I, I get what you're saying. It doesn't matter. The, the, yeah, the I get what you're pointing. The number, the six, the six, you, mathematically, you are correct. I took statistics in college. You Did, did you finish it? <laughs> yeah, or did I, you just start I did, it? but I, it was a slog. I won't lie. No, it's terrible. Uh, 62% of stats are made up 47% of the time. <laughs> Everybody knows that. But I get your point. Yes, statistically the six, but my point is there's far fewer people to compete with for those numbers. And if you do win, you're probably going to share it with fewer people. That said, here's our tweet, Contessa, because you and I are hosting Power Lunch. You win this is, one, your, this on. is your tweet. Yeah, I just retweeted yeah, it. You win $1.6 in the lottery. The first thing you do is what? We've got some amazing. One guy said, I'm going to large size my fries. Now, that's ambition. What would you do, Contessa? 
I would keep my job and become a big old diva. There's so much I want to say right now, but I, I'm going to move on. I'll see you in half an hour. On deck, Gina Sanchez has three buys and a bail, including this name. She's calling a deal after it lost half its value since January's mystery chart. Call Scooby. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. The feel-good October rally, which was the Dow's best month in more than 40 years, has quickly faded. Stock's set to finish the week in the red, but your next guest says some big tech stalwarts are getting unfairly punished. Joining us now is CBC contributor Gina Sanchez, chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. Got three buys and one bail. Gina, good to see you again. I'm going to get to, I'm going to ask you that lottery question as well, so think about it, that big brain of yours. But first up, Amazon. Now, Jeff Bezos on the Twitter was saying like two weeks ago, basically recession is all but certain. The stock is on pace for its worst year since the Internet crash of the year 2000. But you say you got to buy it. Why? Um, Look, I think that Amazon is getting unfairly punished for guiding down. And it's not that surprising. Everybody right now is guiding down because if we aren't already in a recession, we're probably going to get there pretty quickly with the determination that Fed Chair Powell has uh, to continue to to fight inflation with higher rates. And so if you look at performance by Amazon, it has been fantastic. If you look at expected performance for Amazon, it continues to be great. And so I think that a lot of this is just that they had an extraordinary pandemic. They are going to start slowing a bit, um, but the expectations are still amazing and they look really cheap compared to um, even if you take into account we are now in a higher interest rate environment and we're probably going to normalize at a higher interest rate environment. We've taken that into account and we still think that Amazon is cheap here. All right, next buy is Microsoft, pacing for its worst year since 2008. That's pretty much every stock but oil and gas. So, Gina, on Microsoft, make your your PowerPoint. Sorry. So, so here's my pitch on Microsoft. Look, Microsoft is, is suffering from some pandemic pull forward. A lot of people ended up having to get ready for remote work, deal with remote work, um, upgrade their systems throughout the pandemic. And they're starting to see a glut of, of, of spending um, expected next year. And so the projections for next year are modest but positive, but very low by Microsoft standards. And I think that if you look at uh, what's happened to the stock, they have more than priced that in. Microsoft is an absolute steal. It's 21 times forward earnings for a stock that has tremendous growth and where the cloud story is not going away. I think we'll have low earnings next year. And I think that that will pick up and we'll get back to a more normal rate where spending is necessary and quite frankly is is important to most corporate, um, you know, corporate backbones. And so you're not going to get away with not spending money on Microsoft. Uh, So I think 21 times is a steal. Yeah. And we we showed our mystery chart before the break. The stock is is down. It's Adobe. But another one that you you like, I'm noticing a trend here, kind of companies that are best in class don't have a monopoly, but It's not not a monopoly. They're pretty strong companies. If if they're not a monopoly, they're really close. And Adobe is one that continues to expand and, and, you know, uh, revolutionize, you know, their brand, their offering, and they're 
quite frankly, just their whole subscription model um, has really, really improved over the course of the pandemic. Um, you know, they they went head to head with my bail, um, which is to add, you know, signing capability. They just bought Figma. You know, this is a company that's continuing to um, expand. They've had a tough year, and that's one of the reasons that they're down. But they're trading at 18 times forward earnings, and next year's expectations are very strong. Um, and so, you know, here again is one that is going to come back, and that's that's the theme here is we're investing in companies that are going to survive the recession. All right. Those are your buys. Amazon, Microsoft, Adobe. This is your bail. It is DocuSign. I got to imagine the, you know, the COVID pandemic, whatever, over. Uh, also, housing. Ouch. Yeah. That was a big driver for DocuSign. Um, the pandemic, it was a pandemic darling for lots of reasons, um, but refinancing, uh, buying homes, and being able to, to process those through DocuSign was a huge mover. And now the refinancing market is all but frozen. Um, and this is a company that really only offers one thing, and one thing that was quickly replicated by another company, Adobe. And so expectations for sales and revenues next year and earnings are terrible. I mean, literally like minus 400 percent. It's Oof. it's this is a company that you want to get out of before it, it disappears. Gina, what would you do? You win the lot 1.6 billion, 782 million after tax. What do you do? First thing you do is what? The first thing I do is I buy my I buy my mommy a new house. This is why we like you. And, you're, and obviously you love your mother, which means we love you. So Gina Sanchez, thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully a nice, a really Nice house, ocean views, Malibu. Gina, thank you. Really nice house. Really nice. With a guest room for your favorite TV news anchor. All right, still ahead. Let's say you win the Powerball $1.6 billion, and you decide, you know what? I'm going to buy some fine art. Well, you're in luck because perhaps the greatest personal art collection ever is about to go up for auction. Robert Frank up next with the ultimate estate set. All right, let's call this the ultimate billionaire estate sale. Microsoft founder Paul Allen was always rumored to be an extensive art collector, but now only are we realizing just how accurate that really was. And there are some masterpieces that could break records headed to the Christie's auction block. Robert Frank joining us with the details on this and maybe some of the superstars. I mean, he's, people knew he bought art. What yeah. billionaire doesn't? This is unbelievable. Yeah, we knew he had maybe a holy grail. He's got like five holy grails. Like the actual the, holy I thought there was one. Not and, the, but he's got Harrison Ford, painting like, equivalents of them. There are over 150 works of art spanning 500 years. Sales expected to total $1 billion or even more. That would make it the most expensive art collection ever sold. You got three paintings alone estimated at over $100 million each, including Van Gogh's Orchard with Cypresses. That could top his record, which was last set in 1990. You got this beautiful Gauguin expected to fetch over $90 million. And Lucian Freud's masterpiece called Large Interior, that's expected to sell for over $75 million. Paul Allen had a great eye for art investments. He bought Klimt's Birch Forest in 2006 for $40 million. It's estimated to sell next week at over $90 million. Wow. Now, along with his art collection, his estate has also been selling off his real estate in Seattle and New York. And his two yachts, his smaller yacht at just 300 feet, was sold yesterday. And his main yacht called Octopus, now available, you can charter it for a mere $2.2 million a week. All the proceeds from the art sale will go to charity. 
And that sale at Christie's will be next week, November 9th and 10th. Brian, there will be a lot of billionaires in the room. And I ran into Leo DiCaprio at Christie's last week. He was viewing a private Like preview. Leonardo, like the it, actor? Or yeah, is the there actor. somebody named Leo no, that we no, don't know? No, Leonardo DiCaprio. What was he doing there? Uh, he, he's a big art collector, and, he, and I, I, I was oh, there with a few other friend, people in a private art. preview, and he was there. So I don't know what he's going to be bidding on, but there will be a lot of billionaires, a lot of celebrities watching this and maybe bidding for this. So thing. go back to the two-yacht thing. Yeah. He had two yachts? He had two yachts. Because uh, you can? Because he could. He had multiple vintage Which aircraft. one is that? Look at the back of that. Uh, that's Octopus. Octopus actually has... I've a, seen Octopus in real life. Yeah, it's huge, and it's got it's a... It's an sub, ugly... I don't think... It's not a very it's attractive... It's got a submarine that you can just get in and drop down in the water without anyone seeing you. Very James Bond-like. Well, it's like and a half-research vessel, half-yacht, kind of, Right. right? He had multiple apartments, Seattle, New York, of course. He owns the, the Blake Se- Trailblazers. The, he owned the Trailblazers. Seahawks. And the Seahawks. Those are still in his trust that are controlled by his sister. He, of course, signed the giving pledge, so more than half his wealth will go to charity, including the proceeds of this auction. Which but, is great, And it, but let's be clear. When you do that, I would imagine there are also significant tax benefits to your estate. By donating the proceeds of the sale to, to charity... You're doing the good. You're doing the right thing, 100%. but you're going to have like no tax bill for the next hundred years. He had very good accountants. We need those account. We need that <laughs> yacht. And you were telling me something because we saw you in the hall- hallway that the octopus you can charter it in Antarctica. Right Why would anyone want to do that? Because right now the wealthy want explorer yachts. They want to mm. go way off the beaten path. So they want to go to Fiji. They want to go to the poles. They want to go not to the normal Mediterranean beaches that all the hoi polloi are going to. They want to go far out. Fort McMurdo, baby. There you <laughs> exactly. go. Here, here we come <laughs> on Paul Allen's yacht. Yeah, yeah. All right, Robert, thank you very much. Thank Let us know you. how it goes, by the way. Yep, I will. Which one is going to go the most, do you think? I think that, that uh, Van Gogh yep. is probably going to go for the most. Or, or, was, or the Cezanne, which is also estimated at 120. He was a little nuts. But he was, a little nuts. He could paint. Yep. Robert, thank you. Thanks. All right, up next, is the West really the best, like Jim Morrison saying? Not when it comes to shipping and ports. At least not anymore. The executive director of the new King of Tonnage is up next. Who could it be? Stick around. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. There is a new king when it comes to American ports. The port of New York and New Jersey is now the biggest port by so-called TEUs. That's 20-foot equivalent units. Those are basically those big containers you see on trucks everywhere. New York is now bigger than Los Angeles or Long Beach. But how exactly did that happen? Let's ask Rick Cotton. Rick Cotton, executive director of the Port Authority of New Jersey and New York. Rick, uh, congrats on your new title, uh, by the way. Kind of came out of nowhere. How did this happen? Well, the uh, cargo levels at the Port of New York and New Jersey have been increasing steadily over the past few years. Uh, we were we actually passed uh, Long Beach and uh, became the second busiest port uh, pre-COVID. Uh, what's happened since COVID, however, the flood of cargo has actually now propelled us for the last couple of months into the position of the busiest port in the country. That's due to some challenges that the West Coast ports have, have faced. Uh, they've had congestion at the anchorages. They've struggled to some extent with Uh, labor uncertainty with uh, some degree of uncertainty related to railroad congestion and getting their uh, containers off the port. The result is that a significant amount of the West Coast cargo has shifted to New York and is that and we and we spoke with Gene Sirocco of the Port of Los Angeles. He was on set a couple weeks ago. Really appreciate that. 
Was, was this a is this a short term shift, though? If You know, some of the labor issues now cleared up. Congestion's getting better. Do you expect the tonnage to return back to the West Coast or do you think New York and New Jersey, you, we can keep it for good? Well, uh, we believe a good percentage of it uh, will stick. There's no uh, in our in our view, there's no no question. Shippers uh, want reliability. They want uh, certainty that their cargo will come into port and get, uh, go out of port uh, with as few delays as and uh, as possible. We think the Port of New York and New Jersey has proved that to the carrier community, to the cargo community. So we believe that a good deal of the cargo that has shifted from the West Coast yeah. to the Port of New York and New Jersey will stick. And there's this threat of a, of a nationwide rail strike in just literally a couple of weeks. I mean, if that happens, what does that mean for you? Is that a good thing in some weird way because you're, you're so close to your end customer? Or is it just bad for everybody? Well, I think it's going to be bad for everybody. The fact is, uh, just by virtue of the uh, New York, New Jersey uh, marketplace, we're going to continue to serve that without question. But we will uh, we'll all face the challenges of a na- national uh, railroad strike. Yeah, you know, listen, I, I go on marinetraffic.com and I look at that, look at ship congestion because you know what, as one does, um, there seem to be a lot of ships off the East Coast as well. What's the congestion level for you compared to normal times? Because every time I drive, you know, past Newark, which is basically every day, or go over the bridge, I can see a lot of ships. Well, the uh, the experience of the Port of New York and New Jersey has actually been among the best in the country in terms of maintaining fluidity. In fact, you see the green uh, across your screen right now. Uh, the fact is the, the port has really become extremely skilled in handling uh, the flood of cargo that's yeah. coming in from the ships, shipping it out with the, with the railroads, working with the trucking community. The secret largely has been communication and coordination of the many actors that go into a port uh, functioning effectively. So we have maintained very low numbers of ships at anchor, much lower than the West Coast, as an example. We've maintained a very low uh, number in terms of days at anchorage for ships uh, that do go to the anchorage. But the majority of ships actually come straight into the port of New York and New Jersey without going to the anchorage yeah. at all. All right. Really appreciate having you on. Rick Cotton, Port of, port of New York and New Jersey, king of the TEUs. Appreciate it, Rick. You have a great good weekend. Thank you very much. All right, still ahead. Is China finally done with its soul-crushing COVID zero policy? Eunice Yoon live in Beijing on that next. And on Monday, it's a big one, Boston. Do not miss our interview with the CEO of New England's biggest utility. Could they not have enough natural gas to make electricity or heat your home this winter? Well, that utility just warned the White House. It is not out of the realm of impossibility. We're going to ask how this could happen in America, in Boston, in the year 2022. That's on Monday. We're right back after this. All right, welcome back. As always, I want to get one more thing before we go, and maybe, maybe some good news for folks in Shanghai, Beijing, and thousands of other cities and towns across China. And that is the potential end, finally, of China's painful zero-COVID policy. Now, these are hopes, but they're just hopes right now. But those hopes are helping stocks 
Yunus Yun is in Beijing with the latest on the ground of what we're seeing and hearing. Yunus. Thanks so much, Brian. Well, officially, of course, zero COVID is the policy here, but there was uh, what appeared to be a bit of a shift in the public messaging, which could potentially lay the groundwork for an exit to zero COVID. An epidemiologist who was formerly with the Chinese CDC uh, told a city event that the policy would see, quote, substantive changes within six months, setting progress on homegrown vaccines. Also, the official People's Daily reported that the effects of long COVID are mild and said that controls should be precise. They said not full-blown lockdowns over single cases. Now, zero COVID has not only been constraining for the economy, but also on government finances, especially local. The uh, several local governments actually announced this week that they're going to start charging for tests. Now, there are still signs, though, that the Chinese are only willing to go so far. In a visit to China by the German, by the German uh, chancellor to Beijing in order to meet President Xi Jinping, the chancellor announced that China has agreed to approve the import of the BioNTech vaccine, but only, Brian, for foreign residents, so not to be widely dispersed among the Chinese population. Yeah, you guys still don't have the Western vaccines. But listen, Eunice, I, I, first off, it's, it's almost year three. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't imagine what you guys have gone through these lockdowns, mental health wise, everything else. But from an economic point of view, if zero COVID is so draining for the government's own budget, why haven't they been moving faster? It's not care about the money? Well, no, well, so from a, a health perspective, uh, the country and the medical system might not be ready for it, but... Um, as I was alluding to before, uh, the Communist Party has to rewrite the whole narrative around zero COVID in order to really um, set the stage for an exit. Uh, so far, the uh, Communist Party has really been painting itself as infallible, and uh, they've been describing zero COVID as a mark of how the Chinese system is superior to the U.S.'s and indeed um, the overall um, systems in the West. So. A lot of people in the process has been very scared of the virus. So politically and socially, the government here uh, really needs to make a wholesale change of the zero COVID story. And um, in addition to that, we don't really know uh, what Beijing's overarching um, definition will be of what an exit of zero COVID is. Uh, We're supposed to get some more information over the weekend when the health commission um, and as well as other health authorities yeah. hold a briefing on what they say are going to be targeted measures and prevention control. Well, I'm thinking about you and, and some of the other friends I've got over there as well. I just saw in Reuters, by the way, that the number of cases in Shanghai was the highest since May. So you wonder if it's even effective. And to change it would have to kind of admit that, hey, by the way, we've been wrong for the last three years. I can't see that happening. Rooting for you. Eunice, thank you very much. All right. That does it for The Exchange here. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely. 
positively FedEx.